You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. We're taking a short break while we prepare for the next season of the podcast. And so we're using the opportunity to revisit some of our favorite interviews. This week is from the basketball coach, Jen Busek. As the father of a daughter, I think Jen is a terrific role model, and I hope you find her as inspiring as we did. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is NBA coach Jenny Bosek. Jenny is a former WNBA player, assistant coach and head coach, the first person to hold all three roles in the league's history. She was an assistant with the Seattle Storm when they won the WNBA championship in 2004 and 2010, and has also been a head coach for the Sacramento Monarchs and the Seattle Storm. In 2017, Jenny became the player development coach for the Sacramento Kings, becoming the third female assistant coach in NBA history. Then in 2018, she became an assistant coach for the Dallas Mavericks. Jenny is a coach with a deep sense of purpose and belief in the power of intrinsic motivation to drive you to become the best version of yourself. Her career is a study in perseverance and risk-taking that has resulted in redefining paradigms. She is self-reflective, empathetic, and focused on helping those in her circle of influence become, in her words, a better me for a better we. This interview had a transformative impact on me as it made me question my own beliefs on goal setting and the power of extrinsic versus intrinsic rewards. There are many moments when Jenny is able to articulate insights about leadership and the key ones that stayed with me afterwards were how a culture is like an ecosystem and in order for it to thrive you must understand how one thing affects another. That if your definition of success are things out of your control such as your title, money or what people think of you then you are not going to lead an emotionally stable life. Your goal has to be to try and be the best version of yourself. And when you stop caring about your athletes first and shift the focus onto your goals as a coach or leader, then the athletes will eventually sense it and you will lose them. This was a wonderful conversation with a coach who transcends what it means to lead in both elite men's and women's competitions. 
and I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Jenny Busek, good afternoon, or rather, good morning where you are, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I mean, just based on the questions that you sent, I, I'm encouraged and challenged by this conversation I think that we have coming up. Well, now you've set me up like that, I better do my best to deliver on those questions. But Jim and I are really looking forward to chatting to you today. We, we talk, love talking a little bit about basketball. And of course, we're going to touch on one of my favorite places to visit as well, Iceland. But perhaps before we get into the interview, I could start with something really simple, which is where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today? So I'm an assistant coach right now with the Dallas Mavericks. My journey's taken me all over literally the world through this great game of basketball. It definitely is an adventure has been an adventure, always is an adventure. It's not the profession you want to be in if you are if you need stability or predictability or a lot of continuity in your life, but it's it's worked for me and, and it's been a, a great, great pleasure and blessing. But we are now, my daughter and I, in the great state of Texas in Dallas with the Mavericks. Oh, it sounds fantastic. It's one of the best things. In these tough times where there's a lot of challenges, to be in a place where you can be outside is such a blessing because you, you just, it's not safe to be inside with, with people. But when you have, especially when you have a kid to be able to be outside and go on nature walks and learn and explore and, and just have that quality time connecting with the outdoors is a blessing in disguise for sure. You have had firsthand experience of some great coaches, people like Rick Carlisle, Dave Yerger, Brian Agler, Nate McMillan and Donovan, and of course, John Wooden. What is it you think that the great coaches do differently? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things about all the great leaders that I've been around is that they have a great sense of of self. You can lead a lot of different ways with a lot of different personalities. I've seen a lot of different leadership styles be successful, but you have to be true first and foremost to who you are and not try to be anybody else. And I think that's a tricky thing, especially for young leaders, because you've been influenced probably by a very good leader and it's a tendency to just want to be like them, but it may not be who you are. And, and actually Mike D'Antoni shared something with me when I was getting ready to go into my first head coaching job. And I was young, I was 30, 31 years old at that time. I was going to be the youngest head coach in professional sports in the United States. He was coaching the, the great Phoenix Suns team with Steve Nash, and they were on a great run there. And happened to connect with him through some interesting circumstances. That's another story. But he he really took me under his wing and he said some things to me and and imparted some things to me, especially in regards to leadership that stuck out. He was a player's coach. He was known for that. And his style was very different, especially at that time, to most NBA coaches. He said this to me, you have to know who you are. I'm a player's coach. I'm a relational coach. And But when you are different to the, the norm, you have less margin for error, but it's still critical that you are true to who you are. And so it made me think really going into that first head coaching job for the first time, like really, really think like, okay, who am I? What has been my leadership style up to this point as a player, as an assistant coach? And how can I commit to being intentional and staying true to that through thick and thin, just hearing from him how critical that was in that consistency of self-awareness. So that, that would be a big one for me. Another one, another one that's not as talked about is in terms of attributes of the greatest leaders that I've ever been around. I think it's really under talked about, but it's, it might be at the top of my list underneath that self-awareness piece is empathy and understanding the importance and the power of empathy and the need for it as a leader. And so Seeing the great leaders that I've been around be great listeners, be great studiers of their, the people in their circle of influence and try to do everything they can and having the emotional IQ and the ability to put themselves in people's shoes, especially in different situations, really sets them apart as a leader. You had a distinguished playing career at the University of Virginia, four regular season championships and three NCAA Elite Eight appearances. And in 1997, you graduated with a double major degree in sports medicine and sports management. Knowing what you know now about coaching, what do you wish you could have learned at university back then? You know, I have to say I was prepared. I went to great high school, had 
a great coach in high school. If I told you stories about my high school coach, you wouldn't even believe it. But other than my parents, he probably shaped me more than anybody in my whole life. And then went on to University of Virginia and was surrounded again by just unbelievable people that helped me find who I was and encouraged that, both my high school coaches and who I was around in college. For example, the major that I ended up having, as you shared, I created that major, but they allowed that just through conversations with the leaders, the deans, you know, and, and just telling them my interests and, and some of my thoughts. And they said, well, why don't you put together a proposal and create your own major? And then we'll, you can propose it to all of the different parts of the university that will be involved, all the leaders. And if you can sell it to them, then we'll create a major for you and tailor make it for you. And so I had to put together this well thought out proposal of, of my major and what I thought the curriculum should be and how it should look and why. And, and then I had to go to the Dean of the, the educational school, the business school, the, the arts and science school. And I had to sell this. They all went into, they all thought it was great. And they, they formed this major for me that not only was it just tailor made for me and my interest and my curiosities, but it was a five-year deal. So I was only playing four years of basketball, but it, because it was a five-year deal, they gave me a fifth-year scholarship, paid for that. And that fifth year included six mini internships, which was part of the proposal because in my observation, I'm looking around and I'm seeing like, you know, all these other college students, they're spending their entire college time, well, part of the time partying, but the rest of the time thinking about what they're going to do after they're putting all of their attention into what they're going to do when they graduate. They have jobs, they're doing internships, they're doing interviews, they're doing all this stuff. And when you're a college athlete, you have no time for any of that. You're in survival mode. You might even be in a major, some, some student athletes that is just so that you can get the grades to stay eligible. It's not even something you're interested in. And so we're so in the present and in, in survival mode as a collegiate athlete that all of that huge percentage of athletes that don't go on to play professionally end up at the end of college with a degree, but no idea what they're good at apart from sport and what they're interested in. And research is very clear that the best way to figure it out is to try things. And you're not going to like a lot of it, but you won't know until you just try and kind of date around. And we don't get an opportunity to do that. So to have a fifth year where I had six mini internships to try things was invaluable for me when I ended up getting to the point in my life where I was making that transition. Your father is a doctor and your mother a psychologist and your maternal grandfather founded the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology at Tulane University. So when your staff and players describe you as intuitive, I imagine they are referencing skills you picked up around the family dinner table. What are your top tips on forming the right relationships with players in this digitally distracted world? It's a great question because it is getting more and more challenging because of this generation. This generation is hard and that's not their fault. And again, that starts with empathy. Okay. This generation can be frustrating for older generations and leaders because they're different and, and there's a lot of big changes in this generation, spikes and declines that's atypical in, in generational transitions. The first step, I think, is for us as leaders learning about this generation, learning about what's different about them, why they are the way that they are. The more understanding we have, the more we can connect and meet them where they are. And you can't really influence somebody until you meet them where they are and then lead them from that point. You can't just get frustrated that they're not where you want them to be. You got to figure out where they are, why they are there, connect with them at that point, and then build up some equity to, to influence. You have to build equity with this generation. This generation is not trusting. This generation is lacking in some of the emotional IQ relationship skill departments. And again, it's not their fault. And so we've got to, to put in some time in those areas before we even have really a starting point in terms of leading them. The confidence is low in this generation. Again, not their fault. So their ability to handle truth and feedback, which is what coach, good coaching is, there has to be some built up trust first before they can, they can handle that. And the old saying, 
that athletes, students, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. I think that's more important than ever. And so understanding this generation, putting in the time, building relationship, building trust, helping them learn about themselves and some of the, the things that about that about their generation and the way that they've been brought up, that the more they understand about themselves, the more you can deal with it head on. I think all those things are important when you're leading, especially this generation. Jen, you have said, when people choose to follow you, it's because you represent who they want to be like. And so I wanted to ask, what are the values and behaviors that the people who follow you see? I don't remember saying that, but I do think they're especially this generation, you know, in the WNBA and the NBA, you're dealing with men and women that are about as street smart as you get. And they're going to see through you. They're going to see who you really are. If you are a leader that has ulterior motives, that has selfish ambition motivating you, they smell it out, especially over time. So I think the goal for me has always been to stay true to who I believe that I am and want to be and never let this business, which this is tough, and my surroundings change me or harden me because then I feel like I would lose my influence because I do believe my influence comes from being somebody that since day one when I got into coaching, got into this for no other reason but to help these athletes become the best that they can be. I was blessed even two weeks ago to have a player on our team who's bounced around a lot. He's older. He's a vet. He's made a lot of money. He's experienced failures. He's experienced success. He's been cut. He's been traded. He's been through a lot in his life, very streetwise. And he said, just in passing under his breath, like, no, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying, coach, because I know that you have no motive other than to help me. And he said it much more in passing than that, but that blessed me because I'm like, okay, I'm still here in this place and they know it. And so being authentic, not being about your goals, like so many coaches, especially on this level, they get hung up in climbing the ladder, how things are reflecting on them, their job security. And anytime we, I think as a leader, as a coach, start becoming about us, we start living in fear of what people think, reflection, job security. Now it becomes about us. We lose our influence. And I believe our most powerful influence is to care about these men or women and and keep their well-being first. I was reading recently, again, I hope this is a quote that I can attribute correctly to you, but (laughs) you said that you were more attracted to being part of a team's ecosystem than to any other role or title within it. And I was really intrigued by the word ecosystem to describe the dynamic within a team. And so I wanted to ask you, what are the most critical components from your perspective in creating a really powerful and dynamic ecosystem? First is understanding that it is an ecosystem that is fragile. When you learn about any ecosystem, you understand how one thing affects the other and it's continual. And so it's got to constantly be managed and monitored because something even like that might appear in isolation to be a good thing, how is that affecting everything else? Because it might be in isolation, a good thing, but to the whole, a not. And so having an understanding of that, having a finger on the pulse of that, monitoring that, I think is something that's critical. It's something that that I'm continually talking to like Coach Carlisle about, just trying to have like a different perspective to be able to step back at times and see this and then give him some feedback on the ecosystem and, and maybe things that he can do to keep it where we want it to be. And my experience with championship cultures is this, is finding that quote unquote magic ecosystem. And then once you've experienced that, you know what you're looking for. You know what it feels like. And it starts with the people that you have in your ecosystem. You add or you take away one ingredient to the ecosystem. I think we can sometimes underestimate how much that can affect things. And then it's also like, these are human beings. So what's going on in their lives individually? So you could bring back the exact same group next year that had that magic ecosystem, the exact same people. 
And based on their mentalities and what's happened in the time that you between you now and when you've seen them, what's going on outside of the, the game, the ecosystem can change. So it's, it, it's a constant shepherding of these men and women's hearts and having relationships with them and having a staff that, that has relationships with them so that you can shepherd what's going on. And if somebody starts to go astray, you can bring them back into the group because you understand the importance of that one affects all. It is my favorite thing about sport, but it is probably the most challenging thing about managing a team is because it's these are people. So it's constant change to your ecosystem and a constant trying to bring it back to where you think it's the optimal operating point. Jenny, I have this summary of your philosophy, which was characterized by a quote again from you, where you said, better me for a better we. And I thought it was fantastic. Such a great way of building on that idea of there's no I in team. Well, actually there is, because if you're better, we'll be better as a group. And it really resonated with me. And I'm wondering if you could tell us where this philosophy came from. Well, you know, I do a lot of speaking to companies over the years. I've done a lot and I really enjoy that. They all oftentimes want, want to hear uh, how we can, how they can apply like sport principles, team principles, leadership principles to what they're doing. And I was going to speak to a company in Seattle years ago and they had a motto that was something about that. Like it was something about like, no, no, me, only we, or something like that. It, and in thinking about their motto, that's where it kind of like came to me like, no, it's the better you are, the better we are, as long as your pursuit of me is for the we. And so my whole talk was about, I can't remember my exact talk, but it was just about how it's not mutually exclusive. Like, we all should be striving to be the best version of ourselves, but that the greatest of the greats understand that everything that we've been given is to give away for the greater good. And that's where the beauty in life really comes. I think you see athletes mature in that way. You see like the great Michael Jordan, for example, we just watched that documentary that just come out and early in his career, it was all about becoming the best him. The elite of the elite, like the best of the best, they're solely motivated by becoming the best version of themselves. You, you see, they you already are the best in the world and they're still hungry. Why? Because it's not about being better than anybody else. It's about being the best version of themselves. And there's a strength and a freedom that comes in that motivation. And oftentimes we get too hung up in comparing in this, that, and the other, and, and we lose our inner barometer. And the greatest of the greats do that. But the, the even betters or the best version of themselves, when Michael Jordan transitioned from, he already was gifted in this, this innate desire and motivation to be the best version of himself and not care how it compared to anybody else and the hunger that came along with that. But when that shifted to a, a more noble realm, not just being the best version of himself, but like how could he – use that to offer that to his team and now become that better me make for a better we and that tapped into his leadership and really sacrificing in some ways some of his me but I would argue made him a better me for the we that's when he experienced the beauty of of team and being part of something greater than himself and that's where his legacy ultimately lied you know this whole idea of sacrifice and being a head coach is is so intertwined. But I guess there's times where you get challenged. I mean, you were an assistant with the Mystics. Then you go to the Miami Soul and eventually you get to the, the storm, the Seattle storm, and you become part of that team that wins the championship in 2004. You then go to the Monarchs and you get fired. You get let go. And I imagine when that happens, it must make you doubt yourself, if only for a moment. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you've learned about dealing with self-confidence and building belief when a major setback like that happens in your career. It absolutely shakes you. I think if you're human, it's caused me over the years, like just you can't be a good head coach if you don't have kind of a screw loose. You're not wired a little bit differently. And you're not one of those people that's kind of like wired for risk and challenge and understanding that that's, ultimately what brings out the best version of you and you're motivated by that. So it starts with, I think, how do we define success and having a clear creed, an inner creed of what is my definition of success? 
My belief is if your definition of success is are things that are out of your control, such as your title, money you make, what people think about you, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to leave much of a legacy. You're going to live a very emotionally unstable life. Your confidence is going to waver constantly and your mental health is going to suffer. And ultimately your, your performance and you reaching a very high level that's sustainable is, is going to be suspect. My definition of success, and I've learned this from being around some of the greatest of the greats and studying them is again, what I said earlier to become the best version of myself and understand my gifts, talents, passions, ability, experiences, pains, struggles. It is all for the purpose of giving back, making this world a better place, serving others through what comes not just to me, but will go through me. And, and so if that's the case, nobody can take that from me. I don't need a title. I don't need a job. I don't need a paycheck. I don't need anybody's approval because I'm focused on that. So I didn't strive to be a head coach in the WNBA. It came to me and I felt like it was an assignment that I was supposed to accept, but my motivation never changed in terms of what I was doing and my why and my purpose to that. I just had a different role in that. And so I tried to to figure out, okay, with this role, what's my responsibility? Well, it changes a little bit to now having more of an intention and leading in the culture that you you create. You don't have as much influence creating a culture when you're assistant coach. You're supporting. You're supporting a head coach in doing that. And now it's like, okay, what culture do I believe in? And what are the systems that I feel like fit and are going to filter through that to strengthen that? And then ultimately, how am I trying to influence people? What am I trying to teach them through sport? because I think you could teach every life lesson through sport and help them reach their ultimate potential, not just as an athlete, but as a human being, that's what this is all about. Sports should be growing us so that by the time we leave sport, we're more prepared for marriage, parenthood, whatever profession we decide to go in friendships. Like we should be, I think if sports are being used right, we should be more prepared than anybody for anything because of all the things that we go through. But so, yes, while it does shake you to get let go, to get fired, to be talked about, to be criticized, I think it gives you a quicker resilience when you can look in the mirror and say the things that I care about, the things that I was in control of, I I did those well. I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. I can look in the mirror and say those things I did well. And so then you wait for where you're led next. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So many things that run through your career story. There's perseverance and work ethic, but there's also risk, which you talked about as well then. I mean, you turn away from medicine to go and try out in the WNBA, you get accepted. You're about to pack up and leave and they call you back and you get accepted. You go to Iceland to play basketball. You start a family as a single parent. You switch from the WNBA to the NBA. It's been anything but a linear path in your life and in your career. When other people come to you for advice about risk, what do you tell them? I don't think it's a risk to to follow your own heart. I believe that there, I think goals only set you up for frustration and disappointment. 
again, I would go back to this self-awareness. If you can find your inner place where that voice leads you, you can't go wrong. If you follow the peace, if you follow the, the passion, if you follow the purpose, then I think there, what might appear to be risk is actually the least risky life you can live because you're following the things that nobody can take from you. And so there's a strength, there's a resilience, there's an energy, and nobody else is in control of that. I, I don't want to give any human being control of my soul. And so the only way you can do that is by living your life for the internal, the internal rewards, the internal convictions, the in, internal principles, the internal purpose and passions and things that, that are just, I think, I believe we're born with in seed form. And if you live your life in such a way and you're around certain people, those seeds get watered and now take on a life of itself in you. And so that way overpowers any like risk or fears I think the positive things in life, when watered, always overpower the negative. Light always overpowers darkness. Darkness doesn't even exist without light. Darkness is just the absence of light. So when we start finding those real substantial things in our life that that have that, that level of power, then the other things, they don't even really exist. Jenny, you, I wish... The people, I wish this was a uh, television interview because then everyone could see how energized you are just talking <laughs> about this idea of positivity being watered. But it's not always the case, right? It's often in the, uh, in the dressing room, there is negativity and there can be a peer pressure that can be detrimental to the good of the ecosystem that you're creating. And yeah. I wanted to ask if you have any top tips, specific methods, routines, on when it comes to dealing with that negative peer pressure that can take hold within a team? No, it's tough. I, I remember being a rookie in the WNBA and this was the inaugural season of the league and, and no one really knew what we, were, what we were doing, to be honest with you. And so there was a lot of room for complaining and criticism and negativity. And there was just a lot of funky dynamics that first year. I mean, I can go on and on about it. I remember like, cause I had never really experienced that level of negativity, not in a locker room playing the game that we love. And it was like a kick in the stomach. Like it was just like disheartening. I just was blown away because here we are for the first time ever in the United States getting paid to play basketball. And I was the ha- it, like so thankful and just like couldn't believe it. I was just elated. But then the negativity all around constantly was just draining. And I was young. Most of these ladies were 10 years older than me, and I didn't feel like I had much of a voice. And that was when I decided, I started to think about maybe I want to be a coach in the WNBA because I wanted to have a platform for change. I knew this was no good. This was no good. This was not going to be good for anybody. This was not going to be fun for anybody. Ultimately, this league wouldn't even survive like this. And so that, I would say, pain, struggle turned into a passion. And I learned later in life that the word passion, the etymology of that word uh, comes from the word pain. It's pati in Latin, passion. The root of it is pati in Latin, which means to suffer or to endure. And I learned a lot about that. So when we go through very painful things in life, instead of feeling sorry for ourselves or getting broken by that and, and perseverating on that, if we can find a way to heal ourselves, overcome it ourselves, oftentimes that experience is going to lead us to future purpose because we will now have compassion, which is shared pain. We will have passion about helping others either not go through what we went through or if they are going through it, now we can be there to assist them. That experience in the locker room of negativity influenced some of the the ways that I led and lead and coach to this day. I don't want my athletes to feel what I felt. So now that I'm in a position of leadership, if I start to hear that negativity, which you always do within a season, I'm passionate about pulling that young man or that young lady aside and trying to reroute their thinking into a more noble, positive place for their good and for the good of the team. Because I don't want them to experience what I experienced it. It's easy to complain, but it's like if you throw up or you pass gas, it might feel good to you in the moment, 
but it's terrible for everybody around you, you know, and then ultimately that's going to come back around to you. So that team culture and that the championship culture that I'm so passionate about, a lot of that comes from not just experience the good, but the experiencing the contrary and now not wanting other people to have to feel that. That's a great, great analogy. Great. Very, very strong. Thank you for sharing that, Jenny. You were with the Sacramento Kings under Dave Yogo, and he said that you can be contrary. And by that, I mean, she will challenge you. She's not into groupthink because groupthink is death. This really connected with me because I love it when someone has the courage and the energy to be contrary, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's in, at a party, wherever it is, it takes courage. How have you found the best ways of getting that message across without it seeming aggressive or contrary or negative? Well, I don't know if I do that great all the time, to be honest with you. But I think the starting point in terms of having the confidence to do that, I mean, I never thought about that until Coach Yeager had had said that, but I know 100%, 100% that my motives are pure and it's to help. I think the reason why some people don't speak up or they, they get into this group thing, and, and I have great empathy for this, is they're afraid what people will think if it's different. They're afraid of how that's going to affect their job status. I don't believe that's true, but I think that is the belief system in a lot of people is they have to please the people around them. And the way to please people around them is to agree that's the safest choice. It feels the safest. It's the path of least resistance. And you see it a lot. And you see a lot in these great, I'm in the NBA now. So these great men with great ideas, great thoughts, great experiences, great basketball minds, but they're caught up as a coach in, in fear of failure, in, in fear of what people think, in people pleasing. And it's sad to me, honestly, because there's no freedom in that. But I get it. It's a competitive situation, and it's really easy to to get into that fear mindset, just like an athlete can. I think the freedom that I walk in comes from being in the head coach's shoes, too, knowing what I wanted as a head coach. I didn't want yes people around me. That didn't help me as a coach make decisions. So when I asked a question or offered a topic to the group, I really appreciated people who challenged my thinking and threw different ideas and thoughts out there. And even if I thought it was crazy, it still made me think in a healthy way and helped me make better decisions as a leader. And so I really appreciated that. First, I worked for Ron Rothstein down with the Miami Heat for four years. He really encouraged this also. He He would throw out an idea or a question and me and the other assistant coach, we had to have an answer and we had to say why. And I was very young. It was basically my first coaching job. And these are 30-year NBA vets I'm working for and with. So it challenged me to have to think through. Like, I had to, uh, which place should we put in? I don't care. I don't know. No, I have to have an answer and I have to tell why. But it made me a better assistant. It prepared me for being a head coach. So I just, I learned young too, just fostering that environment is, is the way that we all grow. But it comes back down to like, I know my motive is to help this head coach. So if he asks me a question, I'm going to say what I think would be helpful. You can take it or leave it. I'm not going to take it personal, but my goal is to help you. So here's what I see. Here's what I think. Take it or leave it. It's not to, to please you. It's not to try to move up the ladder. It's not to step over this guy next to me. It's to help. To take that philosophy though, into, into your work, into your job, into your life and to have such a deep empathy and compassion and these things you've talked about, it must be so draining. How do you sustain yourself as a leader given the emotional toll that must take? It's something I've had to mature in. My first head coaching job, I was like really caring everything for everybody from like a logistical standpoint where it made it difficult. If you think about it as a head coach, I don't know a lot of jobs like this, but every game, every minute, of every game, you're pretty much disappointing like seven or eight players. There's only five on the floor. So let's say you have a 12, 12 woman roster. There's seven players that are kind of upset in any given minute of a game. There's X number of players, maybe, you know, four out of 12 that don't even get in the game. 
I remember like really having to grow in because after every game, I literally would feel terrible for how that made certain players feel, whether it be their playing time or not playing at all. I felt what they would probably be feeling. And it was, it, it was, it was too much. And so while I do think empathy is a great strength of leaders, there, there are certain things that you, you have to really learn and, and remain, remind yourself of the decisions that you make that are ultimately what you believe are best for the group. While they may hurt individuals, they're always right. And you can still, you have to find the way of still letting them know you understand how they're feeling, but you don't carry it. There's an acknowledgement at the appropriate time, appropriate timing, but you're not carrying it like feeling bad about it. So that's one example. I actually found a great quote from your father who said that Jenny's motivated by what she feels is good for the people she works with day to day. I wondered if you could share a story of where this deep motivation has made a difference with the team in the way that they've performed on the scoreboard or maybe just performed and bonded more to form a better ecosystem. Say the specific motivation again. What did my dad say? <laughs> Your dad said, and I'll give you the full quote. He said, she's all about innovation in what she does, not just for the sake of innovation. It's usually motivated by what she feels is good for the people she works with day to day. And I was just wondering if there's an example that pops into your mind where you've taken that approach and the team have developed yeah. and evolved and gone forward. Well, this is what I talk about the dinner table. This is, this is, this is my family. So my family, as you mentioned, long line of doctors and researchers on both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side. So actually how my parents met was my dad was taking med school classes at Tulane from my mom's father, but they weren't just doctors. The mindset of my family on both sides is to look at status quo and say, is this right? Yes, this is the way things have been done. Maybe done for a long time or maybe all of all time. Is this right? Is this best? And it's not in a rebellious way. It's just the way they're wired and it's what's been passed down amongst generations. My grandfather mentioned that founded, he founded the neurology department and the psychiatry department, both. Well, he, he started both of them. And at that time, those two departments were very separate everywhere else in the world. And, and he took a way more holistic approach to say, you can't separate these two things. These, these two things are one and the same. One's a hardware, one's a software. We're holistic beings. Now let's look at the mind-soul connection, which now there's a million books in Barnes & Noble or wherever about this connection. But he, start, he started that. He was the very first, very first to say and theorize when people are jumping off of the top of a building, whatever they're doing, it's not just because of the way they were raised. Up to that point, they were like something happened in their childhood. And he said, no, I think there's a chemical thing going on in some of these cases that's causing some of these behaviors that we're seeing. And so he theorized that there was a chemical issue in the brain. Now we medicate everything. He was the first to say there's something more going on and we're going to look into that. But the number of first with him was unbelievable. My uncle on my dad's side was the, the involved in taking the first heart out of a baboon and putting it in a child and then figuring out eventually how to do a child to child heart transplant. He's passed now from pancreatic cancer, God rest his soul. But he was a doctor that he would show up at work. He was a genius, like pioneering all this stuff. He would show up at work at 10 a.m. And he said, and people thought it was crazy. Like, is he lazy? Is he this? He that? Doctors are supposed to be in at 6 a.m. They always been in at 6 a.m. Doctors don't sleep. And, and he's, why? I, I'm going to work better if, if I sleep. So, I mean, yeah, if it's an emergency situation, he's in. But otherwise, like, I'm going to be here after I get some rest. And it was very controversial. I'm just giving you some examples. But, like, he didn't see the, he didn't see the point. It wasn't, it wasn't best in his eyes. And so he didn't care what anybody thought. He lost some jobs over it. So I could go on and on and on examples in my family of just because something's been done one way doesn't necessarily mean it's the best or the right way. And we need to continually be looking at all areas of life and challenge that. So when I got into coaching uh, more in a head coaching role, there were a lot of things that had built up over the years. And I'm thinking, why do we do that? 
And is that best? Is that right? Stupid things, like from a logistical standpoint, why do we do shoot-arounds on game days? And I know the coaches out there know what that is. So on game day, you come in 9, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning on a game day, and you go through your preparation, shoot a little bit, go back home, rest. The players are always brain dead, don't want to be there, don't listen. You know, you get them out of bed. Maybe they had a short night. You've traveled. You've changed time zones. I always felt like it's a waste of time. So I finally looked into it. Why, why do we start doing shoot-arounds in the NBA? Well, it was because Wilt Chamberlain was staying out all night, romanticizing all the women, and they implemented the shoot-around so that he had to get up in the morning and maybe it would keep him from staying out as late all night. Okay, so they won championships, and then everybody copied it. So now we're doing shoot-arounds. When you look at it from exercise physiology, mental health, like all these things, it makes absolutely no sense from a scientific standpoint, but we've just always done it. So I sold our ownership on the fact that this doesn't make sense, looked into a lot of sleep science relative to athletes, and we stopped doing morning shoot-arounds. And Sue Burr will tell you to this day, it added five years to her career. We would come in a little early before the game. They've had rest. They own the day. Some of them would come in and shoot. They could do whatever they want during the day. Some of them did come in and shoot. Some of them got treatment. Some of them got workouts and whatever. They, but they own the day, did whatever they needed to do. And then we came in and did our prep right before the game when they were really locked in and wanting to know how to beat the team. But they were way more well-rested, and we always peaked late in the season for that reason. It also helped a lot on the stress load of a team. And, and taking some of the stress load off of them because you learned, I learned how mentally stressful it was to get up in the morning on a game day when you're fatigued. So anyways, that's one example. But we, we did a lot of things like that in Seattle when I was a head coach there and it was fun. I think you've talked to the players, like you, if you talk to Sue Bird, she would tell you a lot of the things that we did really helped from a performance standpoint. It's a fantastic answer and it's, a great, it's great to hear you talking about your family's legacy. Because the last question I'd like to ask you about is legacy. And in the distant, distant future, when you do finish up as a coach, I know it's a long way to come, or perhaps later on when your daughter Riley asks you, you Mum, what legacy did you leave as a coach? How do you think you'll answer? I don't know that I'll answer that. That's not something for me to say. I want her to learn that from, from other people. And I want her to learn hopefully she already is, Lord willing, from how I live my life. You know, I, I just believe talk is so cheap. The, the true leaders, if we're talking about leadership, you teach what you know, and they get a certain percentage of it, but you impart who you are, good or bad. When you're in a position of influence, when you're a parent, when you're a teacher, when you're a coach, when you're a boss, when you're, we all have people in our circle of influence, good or bad, who you are will be imparted. And so me hopefully being the best version of myself on a day-to-day basis, there will be an impartation into her that will be my greatest legacy, you know? And so who I am every day, what she sees and experiences every day is the greatest legacy I can leave. And then if she meets some people along the way, I remember meeting people that knew my grandfather, knew my mom, knew my dad, Hearing from them, having a parent come to me, a mother, a father, and say, are you Bob Busek's daughter? Yeah. Tears. Your dad's, my baby was dying. She was two years old. She was not going to live another year. And your dad saved her life. And she's alive to this day. This is a picture of her, just tears, tears, tears. Not only that, I mean, I want to thank you because he must not have been home as much as you would have liked because he was always there for us. And we want to thank you. This makes me for your sacrifice. Jenny, thank you so much for that answer. It's, um, it's, it's actually quite amazing. It's been, it's been a wonderful interview. I, you're making such a difference to the players and the people in your life right now. But also, I think it's safe to me to, for me to say there's a lot of young women and women all around the world who are watching what you're doing, the path that you are blazing, and it's changing what they think is possible. And so I'd like to thank you very much for your time today and giving us insight into the 
amazing, incredible career journey you've had so far. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. And thanks for all that you're doing. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Jenny Bosek. Jenny is the type of leader I hope my own daughter gets the chance to experience one day. She's humble, authentic, and a great role model in an Instagram world. The key parts of the interview that really resonated with me were how you can't really influence somebody until you meet them where they are and then lead them from that point. Her philosophy of a better me for a better we and her belief that who you are to the people in your inner circle of influence is important. So it's vital to try and leave a legacy of being the best version of yourself that is possible in the hope that this will influence others. I hope you enjoyed this as much as Paul and I did. Coming up next on The Great Coaches Podcast, we'll be speaking to football coach Thomas Frank. Of course, love is a, is a big word and, and a love to your children or your, or your partner is, is different compared to love to your friends or, or your players or your, or your colleagues. Because we all know that there needs to be a lot of demands and there needs to be some consequence. But I really, really believe you need to build that relationship with, with trust or love or what, what you call it. You need to, I think it's so important that you need to show them you care about them, every single one of them. And I think that's the, the most difficult for me as a, as a head coach. I really hope that, that they, they, they feel and they see me as a person that they care about all of them. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Thank you, Jenny. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 